News, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 6th. It's show number 40 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, featuring Todd Zola discussing how to structure fab bids to create efficiency and be sure of getting at least someone to fill a slot. How the decline in home runs this year over last year affects the value of sluggers. And his new series of articles about applying splits in daily games. In our regular Friday matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at coming matchups for Kansas City left-hander Danny Duffy. L.A. right-hander Zach Granke, St. Louis Southpaw Jaime Garcia, and their opponents. And in Master Notes, the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, speculator columnist Ray Murphy, talks about feeding the prospect frenzy. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, as always, the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. The Cubs starter Jason Hamill was mentioned twice recently by Stephen Nickrand of BaseballHQ.com. Of course, regular listeners and site visitors will know Stephen from his starting pitcher buyer's guide column, and uh, he wrote about Jason Hamill in a May base performance value leader report, but he also wrote about Hamill in a research piece that Stephen wrote about the relationship between pitchers who throw first pitch strikes and their walk rates. Let's start with the research article. What did Stephen discover? Uh, a really interesting article that I think is going to be very important to us as we uh, and to, to fantasy players down the line. Stephen basically discovered what you might have expected, but he, he's, he's now proven it with, with statistics, and that is there is a very strong correlation between um, first pitch strikes and uh, base performance value, uh, a strong negative correlation between first pitch strikes and, and uh, walks or control. So a guy who throws a first pitch strike is a lot less likely to walk someone than someone who doesn't throw a first pitch strike. I mean, that, that seems obvious, but we've now got it, got it proven. But the interesting thing is that now we can look at uh, guys whose, whose first pitch strike rate may change for, over time and uh, maybe, in fact, predict whether their control, a newfound control ratio is something that's going to hold or whether, whether a newfound control ratio is something that's going to slip back to a, to a previous level. So interesting research and certainly will have, I think, a, an important role for us down the line. And one of the things that jumped out at me was that Stephen found a very strong tendency for pitchers who had big increases in first pitch strike percentage from one year to the next. 
and that they would keep those gains in the third year after the second year. That means that they didn't regress as much as sometimes we expect there's always going to be a regression. But Stephen found that once a guy has a big gain in first pitch strike percentage from year one to year two, that he keeps it in year three and forward. So that's something to really look at because if a guy harnesses that particular skill, as you said, it has great benefits in walk rate and in base performance value across the board. And and as, as I said, he mentioned Jason Hamill as one of these guys. He also mentioned in his starting pitcher column that Hamill de- demonstrated some pretty terrific skills in May, but also threw up a pretty important red flag. Yeah, Hamill's an interesting guy, and he's certainly driving a lot of teams at this point. He's done very, very well. In fact, has had a, a PQS dom in every single start, I think, up to this point. So pitching extremely well, but there are a couple of red flags with Hamill. And one of them came out of that article that Stephen had about first pitch strike rate. Hamill right now is posting the best control ratio of his career, uh, and that's certainly one of the things that's driving his success. 2.1 control after 10 starts. But Stephen says that the chances of that sticking are very small because his current first pitch strike rate is the lowest he's posted since his rookie year. And so... The current first pitch strike rate correlates with the control rate nearly double what he's currently doing. So expect that we're, we're, we're I think it's a reason to be concerned that Jason Hamill's first pitch strike rate uh, will, will uh, that his control will get worse as the season goes on and as he gets some, uh, perhaps a bit tireder with that arm. The other thing about Hamill to note at this point is that the other big driver right now in his, um, in his excellent work in May was he didn't give up any home runs. Uh, that certainly is not going to continue. A 0% home run per fly rate for the month of May, a 6% home run per fly rate for the season, those are both very, very low. And so we would expect some regression in that regard as we progress. So, I, you know, we're not saying that Jason Hamill is going is to drop off the table, but here's a guy to keep an eye on. If you see his control starting to slip, he starts giving up home runs, uh, you may just want to want to see if you if it's time to sell high on him at that point. Yeah, I'll go you a step further. I think it might be time to sell high on Jason Hamill before this correction occurs, and I just can't see it not occurring, Nick, for all the reasons you suggest, especially that home run rate in Wrigley Field. I mean, come on, as the weather heats up, the ball starts flying a little better. It's it seems highly likely that Jason Hamill's going to undergo a fairly significant ERA correction, and then you mentioned the uh, first pitch strike. Um, metric as an indicator that his walk rate will probably go up, which means his whip goes up, which means his ERA goes up as more of the home runs drive in more runs, and so on and so on and so on. And what really jumps out at me when I look at Jason Hamill's historical record is when you look at his 5 by 5 values, it's way more common to see minus signs than plus signs. And, uh, you know, a guy who's at best kind of a $0 innings eater jumps up this year to 22 bucks. you really have to say to yourself, well, there's a chance he's figured something out there's a chance he's got uh, you know some kind of skill that we're not seeing or that is that he's refined but there's also a chance he's just been really lucky uh, you mentioned the home run rate his his hit rate as well is down around 23% after historically being 30% or higher i think every sign that there is to look at says look out below yeah i think so too the other thing to look at in, in hamill in that excellent may performance was a 34% ground ball rate a 43% fly ball rate so not getting a lot of ground ball outs, a lot of balls in the air, and some of those are going to start clearing the fence uh, at one one point or another. BaseballHQ.com projecting Jason Hamill for seven more wins in the year. A fairly decent 360 ERA, 112 whip, 92 strikeouts in 115 innings, looking at about $15 in total value. Nick, sticking with the Cubs, it seems like we've been talking about 
Edwin Jackson since Bowie Kuhn was losing IQ points. But here was Jackson again in May on Stevens' pitcher buyer's guide list about tremendous skills in May. Base performance value over 150 for the month. 150 base performance value is just very elite level. Is this another love letter to Edwin Jackson that's going to leave us all with broken hearts? Well, you know, maybe not. I mean, this, uh, his, his right now, Edwin Jackson is probably sitting out there in a lot of leagues simply because of a his reputation and b his current ERA is a, was a, a four four point three zero, I think, in May, four point five nine overall. So ERA is a bit high. But if you look at Edward Jackson, that ERA was really the product of a 36% hit rate. He's getting a lot of ground balls. His dominance is up. Uh, kind of a good, perhaps, short-term target. There's a good chance, I think, that he could continue with the surge he showed in May, uh, at least well into June. And and uh, so uh, probably an interesting short-term target, I think, uh, Edwin Jackson, because he's likely to be available in a lot of leagues. Availability is one thing, <laughs> you know. A lot there's lots of uh, things out there that are available. It doesn't mean you necessarily want to buy them. How confident would you be about picking up Edwin Jackson? The Baseball HQ projection is not that great. It's not that great, but you know, I, I, as Stephen said, a good short-term target with the 117 BPV over the past month, a 10.2 DOM, 3.1 control, a 40% ground ball rate. All of those are very positive things. So, uh, if you need some help in this in the month of June, I would certainly look at Edwin Jackson. Well, he projects well into the negative dollars, so take your chances. Uh, Greg Pryon did the batter buyer's guide this week at BaseballHQ.com, and he looked at hitters with the greatest differences between expected batting average and actual batting average. And one player on the list who looks poised to make a batting average gain, he says, St. Louis shortstop Johnny Peralta. Yeah, Johnny Peralta. Johnny Peralta came into the season uh, off of that PED suspension, and a lot of folks expected that he would uh, kind of drop off the table, and in fact, he hasn't. He's got nine home runs at this point which is certainly very, very good. But the troubling thing about Johnny Peralta right now is a 224 batting average. And so you may look at that and go, yeah, the PED thing was right. But actually, his XBA is 268. Uh, a 24% hit rate is the reason for that low batting average. And it certainly looks like, uh, and actually, uh, Peralta's expected PX, XPX is 148, which is very, very good. So Johnny Peralta is certainly a guy who could, could see some batting average surge over the uh, over the next uh, next month or so, and maybe worth looking at in that regard because he's showing the power. Looks like we're projecting 11 home runs the rest of the season, so it looks like he'll top 20 home runs. Uh, 66 uh, RBIs is what we're projecting for a total, and might wind up hitting around 250, which uh, would not be bad at all. That could be very useful for a lot of teams out of the shortstop position. Yeah, he, he's the kind of guy I've been seeing a lot in, in trade offers and stuff in various leagues. Uh, he's being dropped here and there in particularly shallow leagues, and he's been a very useful contributor over his years from the shortstop position. I, I think he's, you know, good for at least ten bucks worth of value down the stretch. So if you can pick him up for less than that and and fill in a slot where ten dollars might help. Uh, certainly Johnny Peralta is worth a look. And finally, Nick, that same Greg Pyron column, Batters Buyer's Guide, also looked at Juan Ligares, who's one of the 90 guys or so angling for playing time in the Mets outfield. Yeah, Juan Ligares has looked pretty good, mainly for batting average at that 288 batting average, because he only has two home runs and one stolen base. And certainly we thought Juan Ligares might show us some speed, but uh, he's not been running much. Uh, and uh, the, the speed index is good, but just simply hasn't been given much opportunity to use his speed. Uh, thus far. And Juan Ligares, if you look at, at the, at the uh, expected batting average, currently at 288, XBA of 248, uh, certainly expect that batting average then to come down and expected projected balance for his BA uh, of 252, but an XBA of 234. So 
Uh, Juan Ligares looks like that batting average could plummet, and given his current uh, stolen SBO percentage, uh, just a, a 10% SBO, a lot of his value is going to go down the tubes once that batting average begins to drop. Yeah, this is this looks like a deep league play only and, and a questionable one at that because, well, first of all, as I said, he's on the DL right now with that intercostal sprain, which puts him at the back of the queue as far as uh, getting playing time in the Mets outfield. Maybe Bobby Abreu could be a guy to look at if you uh, really want a blast from the past. We're only projecting five stolen bases. I know that can help sometimes in the category. Uh, five stolen bases can make the difference between, you know, four points and six points in the category. But overall, I don't think I'd be kind of running to get to the front of the line to get uh, Juan Lagares on my roster. No, very, very definitely not. And you know, This is a guy that's probably not using his tools in the best way, uh, hitting too many fly balls, not putting enough balls on the ground, and not using that speed that he has uh, to his best advantage in terms of uh, beating out hits and that sort of thing. Nick, thanks very much for talking with us, and we'll catch up with you again next week with more news from the National League. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn it over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here. Let's start in Tampa. The Rays have lost 10 in a row. Seems like everybody in the American League East is going to take their turn losing 10 in a row. And the only news they're receiving is bad on top of that and especially losing Will Myers. He broke his wrist. He's going to be gone for maybe two months. They called up uh, rookie Kevin Kiermeyer, hardly a household name, and he's going to get at least some of the playing time. Matt Dodge wrote about all of this in Playing Time today at BaseballHQ.com. So what's going on in Tampa, and how do we play it? Yeah, it's interesting. I think you and I discussed last week the issue of when to take flyers in deep leagues before the results arrive, and about how the both of us were in on uh, Ruby DeLosa last week in Boston. Kiermaier doesn't have Ruby's pedigree or upside, but but there's a lot to like here. And and uh, there are reasons for taking this kind of a flyer. Um, I was fortunate. I got to see him uh, play up front and close in uh, a few weeks ago in Angel Stadium. I saw him make one of the best catches I've seen all year. He hit an opposite field home run. He's an athlete. He hustles. Um, it made me run and look at his stats back then. And, and here's a guy, he, he, he'll strike out a lot. He won't make perfect contact. And his power really is just gap power. But um, so far, so good in his, in his major league results. Um, and when you're talking about two months in a season and, and a left-handed hitter, this is a guy who's going to get a lot of at-bats with, with Myers out and a guy who could make a difference. He's a flyer I would take. I wonder about the the playing time. I know that he's off to a good start, and of course Myers is going to be on the on the shelf. But I have two concerns. First of all, that they the uh, Tampa Rays are a well managed team, and they're very uh, aggressive of platooning. So I wonder if this uh, Kiermaier is going to be sitting against left handed pitching. First of all, and second of all, Myers is going to come back, and when he does, it looks like whatever playing time Kiermaier gets is going to dry up pretty quickly. Yeah, well, let me qualify that. I, I think I did mention that he is a left-handed hitter, and I do expect him to platoon. But being a left-handed hitter, he's going to get most of those at-bats, I think, while Myers is out, if he performs, of course. And yeah, Myers is going to come back, definitely. But now we're talking about four months left in the year. And if he's out for two months, Kiermaier could, could take a whole bunch of at-bats over the next two months, which 
in in terms of uh, in terms of what's left is pretty significant. The projection at baseballhq.com is for 140 at bats for Kiermaier. Now to the end, a couple of home runs, five bags. You mentioned his speed, uh, maybe 10 RBIs. You know, around a five dollar player. Now, depending on your league makeup, that could be really helpful or it could be marginal at best. And I guess it's one of those situations where. You know, you have to take into account how much impact those kind of stats are going to have before you make up any kind of decisions on Kevin Kiermeyer or or anybody like him. Uh, an interesting guy, if you happen to have an outfield injury of your own right now, even if you have Will Myers on your roster and are going to have to replace him, Kiermeyer's one of those kind of guys with enough upside to make him worth a look, but certainly you have to... You have to be very cognizant of the limitations. Yeah, no, that that's 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 a perfect description, PD. It's all about context and and your league depth. Um, I play in deep leagues, obviously. Uh, Kiermaier was taken on our waiver wires real early last night, uh, and one of them, of course, by the guy who has uh, who has Will Meyer and now has him on the disabled list. A couple of weeks ago, you mentioned that we should be looking uh, in leagues where you could grab a guy ahead of time at the relief pitcher Cam Bedrosian. We talked about him briefly, and indeed the Angels have called him up to make his major league debut. He, he hit the field last week. His numbers in the minors were terrific, but not a lot of them in the high minors, and that seems to have led to a bit of a rocky start. In his second game, he gave up four walks and three runs, which is going to scare a lot of people away. So what do you see here, Jock? Are you still standing by your positive recommendation? Um, Long term, I am. Short term, I'm a little surprised the Angels called him up that quickly. I I think I understand uh, the reason uh, in the past week they've they've, they've, uh, received the news that they're not going to have Sean Burnett all year. They're not going to have a vintage Dan De La Rosa who has never recovered his velocity and from his last injury and is now demoted. He's been demoted to Triple A AAA Salt Lake City. I agree with you. I, I think uh, the Angels may have promoted Bedrosian way too early. Um, he needs. He might need some more Double A time, even some Triple A time. On the other hand, his numbers uh, this year in uh, High A and Double A have been terrific. Uh, a, a 45 to 8 strikeout rate in 24 innings. Um, he gave up one one home run, three earned runs, and I watched his his performance last night. He wasn't missing by a lot. He didn't have command of his curveball, and he got squeezed a few times by the umpires. It's not like he was he was walking hitters on four pitches. Uh, he he gave up three he gave up four walks and uh, and three runs. The relievers behind him didn't do him any favors. Um, this could be just a blip, but there's significant risk here in the short term. I think with uh, Cam Bedrosian. But maybe if you're in a in a uh, league that allows you to hang on to him, a dynasty league or some kind of keeper league, and you can get him on the cheap, the long-term potential looks a lot more promising. Yeah, it does. Um, I, I don't think the Angels trust uh, Ernesto Frieri. Um, he's going to have a few more blips this year. And if Pedrosian can right the ship um, and, and pitch reasonably well, I still think he has a chance to seize the closer role this year. It really depends on what he does with this opportunity. I'm sorry, did you say Bedrosian has a chance to end the year as the closer? Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at his numbers and you look at the other options, I mean, you've got Joe Smith as, uh, as uh, Frieri's uh, secondary option. Joe Smith is not a closer by any stretch of the imagination. He strikes out seven, eight batters a game. 
Um, he gets he gets a good ground ball rate, but I think he's he's more of an eighth inning man. Uh, Bedrosian misses the kind of bats that you expect in a closer, and I think he will eventually wind up with that job, if not this year, next year. Staying uh, in the American League West, Houston has welcomed a new player. This guy has a tremendous pedigree in the minor leagues. John Singleton, of course, has uh, pretty much taken over at first base for the Astros. Now, we've been expecting this call-up for a while. You've written about it in Playing Time Tomorrow and Playing Time Today. So what's to like about uh, Jonathan Singleton, and how does he shape up as a guy for the balance of the season? Well, um, obviously, when we're, when we're talking Singleton, we're talking about power and patience. We're also talking about contact issues. I think we're going to see a low batting average to begin with and, and maybe even some defensive struggles. Um, I believe he has two or three errors already in, in just three games. Um, and he is, uh, he's, he's two for 11 so far. He's striking out a little bit. Um, you have to expect some adjust, adjustment time with a rookie like, with, with a rookie like Singleton, but he's going to get most of the first base at bats. Uh, Houston first baseman have hit, uh, less than 200 collectively for the year and was sub, sub par power for the position. So Singleton's going to get an opportunity, even if he struggles early. Yeah, we like him for 260 at-bats at BaseballHQ.com down the balance of the year with uh, eight or nine home runs, going to be worth a couple of bucks. The batting average definitely is going to be a liability, though. Yeah, definitely. there's no doubt about it. He had about a 75% contact rate throughout his uh, time in the minors. He was able to hit 270, 280 there. We'll have to wait and see whether it transfers over to the major league level over the long term. Staying in Houston, Jonathan Villar is really struggling right now, 0 for June, and he only hit 156 in May. I've read uh, some reports that they're calling for Villar to be sent down to the minors. He's even splitting time with Marwin Gonzalez at shortstop. You wrote about this in Playing Time Tomorrow and Today. What's going to go on with the Houston shortstop spot? You know, VR's actually, um, I think, has, has hit better than it shows. He's had some thumb and, so, and now some elbow injuries. He's also had some bad luck. He had a 20% hit rate in the month of May along with a, 20, and a, along with a 24% line drive rate, which is kind of an interesting combination. He only hit 156 in May. The problem with the VR is that he has poor contact anyway, and anytime you have that that combination of those three things, injuries, bad luck, and poor contact, you're going to have a rough time of it. Um, his replacement, uh, Marwin Gonzalez, has an empty skill set. I still think Villar is the guy um, until Carlos Correa is ready, which isn't going to be for another two years. Um, but the low batting average is always going to be an issue. Of course, VR is going to miss a few days anyways. He's apparently having some arm difficulty. Uh, showed up with his arm heavily wrapped uh, on Wednesday earlier this week so um jonathan vr kind of the guy he had the good power in the minor leagues that hasn't come out uh he struggled in the minor leagues with batting average that has come out it seems like everything's going the wrong way for him right now but what about the long term is it only two years till korea shows up or does he have like legs beyond that well i mean that's a that's the million dollar question here really um if you look at his expected batting average, it's 240. And when you think about a guy with with Villar's legs, um, this is a guy if who if he has an expected batting average of around 240, he ought to be able to hit at least that, and maybe even out hit that batting average. So I think if the luck turns and he gets healthy, I think he rebounds.
Over in the American League Central, we're seeing a lot going on in Detroit right now, especially in their bullpen. Joe Nathan is really struggling, and all of a sudden, we're seeing a lot of questions about whether he might even be replaced in the closer role by, of all people, Jabba Chamberlain. Bob Berger looked at this developing situation in Detroit in his Playing Time Tomorrow column. What do we see going on in Detroit with Joe Nathan and the Detroit bullpen? Well, I think there's no doubt that Joe Nathan isn't the same Joe Nathan as we've seen in the past. Uh, um, if you just look at his uh, uh, statistics from year to year, his, uh, his, his history page over at his player link at BaseballHQ.com, um, his strikeouts are down last year or down this year from, to uh, 8.6 per nine innings from 10.2. He's walking um, almost a batter and a half more per nine innings. Um, he's giving up more home runs. Um, his, uh, his fly ball rate is getting him into trouble. His velocity is down. Um, the real question is how bad really is Nathan? Um, he, um, his, his ERA currently right now is 686. His expected ERA is 4.45, hardly closer, closer worthy. But I would expect Nathan to improve and, and maybe keep his job a little longer. That said, I, I think I would be grabbing Chamberlain here. Um, uh, obviously, uh, clubs that sign veteran closers want to give them as much rope as they can. Um, but uh, Joe Nathan isn't a sure bet going forward. How sure are you that Chamberlain's going to be the guy? He, he's had a few cracks at the closer role and hasn't distinguished himself, admittedly in very small samples. Yeah, I like the fact that Chamberlain is a little bit older. I mean, he was he was kind of young and, and living in New York at the time. That can turn a lot of people's heads. I'm not certain that Chamberlain is going to be a closer, although his BPIs are certainly closer-worthy right now. The Tigers also have Al Albuquerque, who's pitching much better than he has recently. And they have Joel Hanrahan recovering from Tommy John surgery, although we don't know what he's going to bring to the table uh, coming back either. But right now, if you're going to make a bet on an alternative to Nathan, I'd go with Chamberlain. And finally, Jock, also in Detroit, the Tigers are looking for help from anywhere with their shortstop problem. They looked at uh, Alex Gonzalez, they tried Andrew Romine, nothing working there. I'm surprised they haven't tendered a contract offer to Alan Trammell. So now they're calling up Eugenio Suarez from AAA, and our minor league staff looked at it in the BaseballHQ.com uh, daily call-ups report. What's going to go on in Detroit, and what can we expect from Eugenio Suarez? Yeah, I, I think Detroit wishes it knew that. Uh, Suarez actually uh, had an awkward base slide last night and injure, injured his knee. So the, um, the word now is that uh, um, he's, they're not sure if he, how long he's going to be out. He could miss a game or two. Um, they may have to make another minor league call up. Uh, um, but uh, Suarez is, is basically a decent fielder, um, good, not great offense, gap power with decent plate skills. The Tigers are in a world hurt with their shortstop spot. Um, it's hard to say where they're going to land here. Suarez is not a must-have, regardless of your league depth. He's a flyer that you can take if you're if you're bereft of any middle infield help. But uh, but right now he might be on the shelf. We have to wait and see. I like that word bereft. It uh, really sums up the situation uh, very well. Boy, uh, the Tigers have a good team, but. I wonder, at some point, do you think there's any chance that they, that they go out and start looking for a shortstop in the trade market? Yeah, I do, because that's going to heat up, obviously, uh, in the, in the next, over the next uh, month and a half. Uh, we've got the trade deadline uh, approaching July 31st. They do need a shortstop. Um, they may even need a closer. Um, the Tigers, again, are a good team with a few obvious holes, and they're going to try to address them. 
All right, Jock, thanks very much for talking with us, and we'll catch up with you again next week. Okay, PD, thanks. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he writes regularly for the site. He's also our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our regular Friday Talk with Todd is next. Todd Zola coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Playing fantasy baseball is about having fun, so have more fun more often with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. One Month Games offer the best of both worlds, the fast action and excitement of daily games with the strategy and tactics of full-season formats. You draft your team using set salaries, all based on player performance. Then you set your roster twice a week, playing matchups and hot hands. Best of all, one bad month doesn't sink your whole season. And a fast start puts you in the money that much quicker. More fantasy fun, more often, with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. This is Ron Chandler, Monthly Fantasy Baseball. More drafts, more pennant races, more fantasy fun, more often. Give it a try. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes Edition. I'm Patrick Davitt. You want to keep your eyes peeled this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column says, Mistakes might have been made. Baseball HQ's Daily Call-Ups report looks at potential stars like the Rockies' right-hander Eddie Butler, Angels reliever Cam Bedrosian, and Houston first baseman Jonathan Singleton. And Stephen Nickrand has a research report, we talked about it earlier in the show, about first pitch strike rates for starting pitchers. Plus, we have all our regular features, daily analysis of changes in playing time, performance validation in facts and flukes, our buyer's guides, pitcher matchups report, and much more. All on the site now or coming up only at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday Talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and still others. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really great to be back, Patrick. And it's great to have you. Uh, always a pleasure to talk with you. You have uh, been busy again this week in the uh, World Wide Web of Todd Zola's Baseball Analysis at mastersball.com. One of the interesting things that they do at the site is a review of all of the um, fabs that have been done in tout and labor. And in one of those, uh, you've now taken on a little bit of analysis across the board in those columns. And I noticed that you talked about Ray Flowers being very, very smart or wise about structuring his fab bids so that he first creates efficiency in dollars, and second, he's always sure he's going to get at least somebody to fill a slot. He's not going to go a week with a guy uh, not playing. Right. Uh, Ray, Ray's not the only one, but looking at the bids, it really stick, sticks out the way how diligent he is and the time that he takes to do it. Uh, f- fundamentally, what he does is, I, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know for sure, but I sort of do the same thing, is you you group the players that you're interested in into guys that, you know, these are guys I really, really, really want. Uh, these are the guys that, well, you know, they're not bad. They would help me. And then the third group is, well, if all these guys are gone, I'll settle for these. And he, you, you set the prices accordingly. Obviously, the first group costs a little bit more money. If there's a guy that you really like, you, you, you spend. Uh, now, Ray's in both Tout and Labor, and Tout Wars has the victory, and Labor does not, but he's in the mixed Tout, so eh, it's not as important as far as the really, really top bids, so it's not as applicable. But he sets the, 
you know, downward. And then the middle bids, he'll have, you know, he'll eight or seven or six dollars for the top players. And then a series of two or three dollar players, you know, 10 or 12 of them. And then Tout Wars allows zero dollar bids. Labor does not. So in Tout, he'll have a series of zero dollar bids and Labor a series of one dollar bids on the, on the weird event that all of his other players are gone. He usually puts so many players in that it never gets down to the bottom of the barrel. Uh, but it just, he's assured of getting a guy that he wants. The point being, if, if guys are, are so close in value in your head to you, you can string them at a lower price because the difference between the two isn't worth what it might take to, to, to pay, to get one or the other. And that's one really distinguishes itself from the other. If you've got a bunch of guys at a similar prices and you don't think the league is going to bid on every single one of them, string a low, a fairly low price and you will end up getting one of those for the low price. Yeah, it really makes sense, largely because the dynamic of a fab auction any week is if you need to bid on a middle infielder, the chances are most teams in the league don't need a middle infielder that week. They've got middle infielders and they're not going to throw away a Jose Altuve so that they can get a bid in on on some lesser player who's in the free agent pool for a reason. So it, it all makes sense. You mentioned uh, the Vickery method. There may be some listeners who aren't familiar with it, so maybe you could just briefly touch on how Vickery works and how it affects the strategizing of fab bidding in leagues that have it versus those that don't. Sure, Vickery, uh, I'm not the biggest online shopper, but I, I think if you shop on eBay, you're, you're familiar with if you it's the you pay one more dollar than the second highest bid, and that's what Vickery does in fab. So if... I bid $50 for a player this week and, and you bid $20 for a player and we're the only two people that bid, I would get that player for $21. Uh, there's, there's arguments for and against it as far as, you know, pricing with fab and, and luck and, and judging the market and all that sort of thing. Some people think that because fab is just such a, such a crapshoot, you sort of need that built in umbrella. As, you know, just to keep things, the numbers under control. Others feel that, well, because you do have that umbrella, you can afford to be, you know, just willy-nilly with the number, knowing it's going to come down. No thought goes into it. Just put the number out. But, of course, the risk is you could have bid 49 for that player that we just talked about, and I would have ended up paying the full 50. So if I put 50 and saying, I, you know what, I just want the guy. I don't care what I pay. Sometimes someone else has the same thought. And you end up getting stuck with it. And I do these, I do the fab reports every week. And I think maybe two to three times a season, I don't know for sure, but I, I, I do see one of those situations where I suspected that's what happened is that the person put in a fairly high bid figuring, I don't know if it's going to take 20 or 22 or 24, but I don't think it's going to take 50. So I'll just put 50 in and I'll settle for whatever it is in the twenties. And someone else had the same idea and put 44 in and, you know, cost, you know, cost the person a few extra fab dollars. Uh, one thing I found between the tout and labor is the high bids for a particular player each week are definitely higher in tout wars. If you go to the tout report and the labor report on a player that is new to the AL or NL league that week, the, uh, the number will definitely be higher. In tout wars. So if you're looking for the numbers to bid in your own league, uh, the labor numbers might be a little better to use sort of 
as a general rule of thumb, but it's interesting to, to use the tout just to see what the interest is. A high number means, you know, there is, there's really, there is interest in that player. So I kind of use them in concert in my own research to, to figure out what the market might feel about a certain player. And of course, those very highball victory beating bids that sometimes, well, they almost always get you the player. The question is whether or not you end up uh, paying the $50 that you bid because somebody else had the same idea or whether the bid flops back to the 20 or 21 or 17 that beats second place. That the, uh, The point is that it's very contextual. One of the main reasons to make a very aggressive high bid is because you really need a guy to fill that slot, and you particularly think you really need that guy to fill that slot. And because of context, that valuation it may not be valid for anybody else anywhere in, in, in all of fantasy baseball. It's just a decent indicator that somebody who's thought about the matter quite a bit is very optimistic about the ability of that player to help in that situation. Right. And the other thing I'm noticing, I don't know if it's so much Vickery, but in general with the bidding is there, there's sort of a, a, a minimum number it usually takes each week to get a particular, you know, how much do a, does a would-be closer go for? How much does the a rookie starting pitcher go for? You can kind of come up with a general number. That number is on the rise, and I think it's because I know, air quote, only a third of the way into the season, but we're getting on a little bit, and and people see that $100 or $92 of fab left, and, oh, you know what, i got to start spending it. It's almost as in an auction where, you know, after after that money break, and they read the money, and you realize, geez, i got a ton of money left, and no one else has anywhere near the money. i better start spending my money. I think people get a little bit more liberal with what they, what they figure they need to put in. So I'm noticing a trending upwards of what it takes to get the better players each week. That's, I kind of like to look at that. Am I only, you know, I, I, what, do, what do I need to pay to get the player? Go a little bit above that. The, what you need to pay, I think anyway, anecdotally looking at it every week, is on the rise. I've heard it said that in an ideal league f- that the free agent acquisition process would be done by a live auction, that everybody who wanted to, to get a particular guy, you would get online or go, go to the bar, or however you organized your, your actual coming into the season draft and rerun it once a week and have a live auction so that everybody was in the moment and could make those kind of valuation determinations. First of all, have you ever played in such a league? And second of all, outside of its impracticality for real purposes, how well do you think that would work? Uh, no, I've never played in, in such a league. And I wonder if that's any different, if it would be significantly different than Vickery to make it worth the effort. It's almost like a, a built-in Vickery system doing that. Uh, now, depending upon the order of players that come out, it might be a little bit different. But, uh, because depending upon your, on the site that you're using, some sites allow you to put in the priority of a dollar and the second player $10. Uh, maybe you don't want to pay the full $10 for the second player, but you know it's going to cost that much to get them. You'd prefer the $1 on the second player, but because of limitations of the software, you can't do it. Well, in a live auction, you know, you throw out the name of the guy you want, get him off the board, so you know if you need to pay the $10. So I can see where, depending on the site you're using, where that would be an advantage. I think actually that might be enough. That might Right there, that might be enough of a reason to make it better than blind bidding over the, you know, series of blind bids. But ultimately, I think 
most of the time, I think a live auction and Vickery are going to be close enough that unless it's a really active league, and I've never done it, a really active league with a bunch of guys that have no problem getting together in the chat room, uh, you know, once a week and, and having some fun, uh, that it's probably worth just keeping it the way it is and, and using your site's mechanism to discern the bids and so the commissioner only has to hit the button and move on to the next week. And that's something you mentioned earlier, and I think it bears a further discussion. You really, to uh, to maximize your ability to bid efficiently, you really need to get in there and understand how your uh, commissioner software works. They're, they're different from one site to the other. CBS runs differently than uh, on Roto, and on Roto runs differently than All-Star Stats used to. And everybody's got their own quirks and differences about how you enter bids, what you can do to enter bids. As you mentioned, uh, a critical difference is uh, a lot of sites uh, prioritize your bids in descending order of, of what you put them in, regardless of whether that's the order you actually want your player. If you bid $10 on player A and $2 on player B, you may actually prefer to have the $2 player B for valuation reasons and, and other reasons. But if you've got a $10 bid, it's going to supersede the $2 bid because it's a bigger bid. And you might get the $10 player and not the $2 player, whereas other sites have software that says you can put them in in any order you want. And you can add waivers claims in any order you want, although sometimes that messes things up. So um, I guess my question to you is, how much time do you have to devote to understanding the software to be sure that you're optimizing your ability to make efficient, effective bids? I think, well, I don't know how much time. I think you need to, it shouldn't take a whole lot of time to read through. At least most of the sites have that written somewhere on the site in FAQ. The commissioner should definitely know. And if, you know, the the fallback is shooting the commissioner a note. Hey, how come I didn't get this guy? Or what do I need to do to set my bids in a certain manner? The commissioner, at at the very least, should be intimate with how the the dynamics of the software to be able to answer those sorts of questions. And, you know, a really good commissioner will send out a primer before the year even begins on, on how to do it. Just, I don't know, I, as commissioner, I want to make sure that I don't have any advantages over the rest of my league. So if I, you know, if I'm that familiar with the, with the service, if I'm a player, it's to my advantage. You know, I'm not, if I'm not commissioner, I don't send out and don't and say, Hey guys, hey, you know, this is what to do. But if I'm commissioner, I don't want to feel if I happen to win, I don't want that win to be tainted. Well, you knew that you could do this and you didn't let us know. So I'll usually send out a primer, especially if it's a new site. Switched over to on Roto in a few year, leagues this year, so we did just that. We sent out the primer. Uh, now the thing about the the bids, as you mentioned, it could be trouble. It's hard to explain, but there's a chance with this sl- smaller bid first, larger bid second, depending on what somebody else does, that it ends up in an infinite loop. Because you know, if I didn't get this guy, I get this guy, and the other guy switched it, and it just keeps flipping between the two as far as uh, that sort of thing. So that's why sites don't it's not automatic it's why don't all the sites have it well the programming to 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 do it is very difficult to to be able to get around those infinite loops so i can sort of understand why sites don't do it and as as a commissioner i've actually i used to do the the tout wars by hand and i've actually had that happen uh i keep you know well you on paper you keep track of it and you know you cross out well this guy's got the bid and go through it well now this guy's got the bid and right and it you know i see how that infinite loot happens 
So, you know, either have a tie-breaking system or, or, or whatever. But to get back to the original question, you should know it. It shouldn't take you that long to understand what happens. But I know people don't because I'll get emails all the time. I'll even get emails on, on, I, I lost, I lost this. I have, I tied someone so with a bid. How come he got it? And they don't even realize that it's just where you are in the standings, which to me is somewhat intuitive. But, uh, I guess maybe not because some leagues may have a, a priority waiver type order. And if you won a tie last week, you up at the bottom of the order this week. But even something as simple as, as where you are, how do you break a tie could influence your bid. If you're lower in the standings, you may not have to go that extra buck because you're going to win a tie. Yeah, I think the bottom line is make sure you understand how it works. And I liked your piece of advice that uh, the commissioner should send out a primer to everybody before the season. Even seasoned players need to be reminded of how it works before that first uh, activation period. And new players to the league really need that uh, maybe even a hands-on lesson or something like that because, as you say, you do want everybody to understand the system well enough to use it more or less equally. Now, there's still going to be a situation where Ray Flowers or a guy like him is willing to put in the uh, extra 20 minutes it takes to organize how he wants to put those bids in and then to actually enter them because some sli- some sites are more efficient at allowing you to make the bids than others, and that's just uh, the cost of doing business. If you're not willing to spend the same 20 minutes putting your bids in, then you got to resign yourself to losing some of your bids to guys like Ray Flowers who are willing to do the work. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there, there's no doubt about it. And, uh, and it, it, it's tedious. It's not hard. It's just, you know, it's just tedious. So you, you know, you throw on your favorite iTunes record or podcast or TV show and you sit back and you throw your, throw your bids in. So, you know, you don't, don't go with the mindset of this is a pain in the butt. Go with the, you know, put something, you know, else you like to do at the same time, some music you like to hear. So it's not as much of a chore, uh, to do it. And yeah, I understand a lot of people play in a lot of leagues, but like you just said, it's the cost of doing business. Uh, the more leagues you play in, you're, you're trying to win them, especially if there's a, you know, if there's a certain amount of jelly beans that you get to, to win at the end. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I know there's an economy of scale that people want, but, you you know, especially in the high stakes arena, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. You know, you're you're trying to win my money. I don't know that I want the uh, the commissioner services to make it that much easier for you to play multiple leagues. You should put the same amount of work into one league or into into an individual league as I do an individual league. I might be playing only one. You might be playing ten. And I know there has to be an economy of scale in there somewhere. But, uh, you know, I want you to work to beat me, especially if you're taking my money. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and while everybody does it different, I'm fortunate I play only in two leagues, and they both have weekly uh, moves that take place on Sunday. So what I do is I just set aside an hour every Sunday morning, 9 to 10. I go through the lists of available players, figure out, you know, which of them might be a good replacement for guys who are on my roster or if I need injury replacements or so forth. I make up the list and I go and do it and I just collapse it all into that one hour on Sunday morning and somehow that seems to make it not so time consuming, even if I know other people do the same thing over the course of a week and maybe it adds up to an hour, but I find that putting it all into one hour of work somehow makes it seem a little better it's like doing all your chores in one big bunch rather than having to do you know paint this on monday scrape that on tuesday and so forth right everybody has schedule and everybody has different family commitments and you have to figure out what's right for them you know i know people that'll spend 10 minutes every night 
going through the transactions and jotting down who was called up that day and, and that sort of thing. So that way, at the end of the week, they have the list, or as you could spend, like you said, an hour on Sunday and go through the week, the week's worth of transactions. So it all depends upon, you know, what you, what you have for your regular job. Do you have, you know, is it easier to spend 10 minutes six times a week or one hour one time a week? That sort of thing. Uh, it, it varies from person to person, but it, it's the, you know, the, the, the big picture is it's, you should put in some effort. You should put in some time. It it shouldn't be that easy to win a league. And it, and it's not going to be easy to win a league if somebody in your league is putting in an hour a week and you're putting in two minutes. Then the chances are, unless you had a fantastic auction or draft, or unless you came into the league with keepers that couldn't be beat, you're not going to win. You do have to put in some effort, and, and that's how it should be. Uh, Todd, you had uh, at FantasyAlarm.com this week a really interesting column about how the decline in home runs this year over last year has affected the value of sluggers. Let's start with uh, first question, how much has the decline in home runs been? It actually surprised me and through April and May, and I know that weather's been really weird and it's been colder and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter why. It just matters that it happened. It does matter why as far as what's going to happen going forward. But, you know, I'll let someone else do the experiment about how far bar tra- ball travels per degree of temperature. All I know is that last year in April and May, a home run was hit every 37 plate appearances on the actually both months were fairly consistent and this season uh, a home run was hit every 43 plate appearances in April and every 41 plate appearances in May which right then and there it's a difference of two uh, might suggest that the weather got better or there were fewer rainouts or that sort of thing uh, but still it was still considerably lower than last year Power is down. Uh, in terms of just pure home runs, there have been, you know, if, if someone's saying, well, you know, what if, what if Trumbo didn't get hurt or what if, you know, Bryce Harper didn't get hurt? Well, they're not going to account for 140 home runs. And that's sort of where we're at. There are 140 fewer home runs. And as it turns out, there have been about 2,000 more plate appearances in April and May. So as much as we think there may have been double headers and postponements and, and weather messing with things, there's actually been more games played this year than there was last year, which is another, you know, there's just fewer, which means there's fewer games to be, to be played, which is fewer opportunities to hit homers. The repercussions is the standings are, are, are more tightly bunched. Uh, it's not completely linear, uh, but the number of the, the standings places the distribution amongst the st- in the standings because as fewer homers hit you're closer to the next person at least in an average standings basis as we always talk about each league has its peaks and valleys and the gaps and that sort of thing but if you look at big picture overall if you for instance if you're using SGP the SGP would be smaller now the standings between the p- players because there's just fewer homers hit, which means the better sluggers, the impact sluggers, could get you an extra point or two because, you know, the the 30 homers that they might still hit, the 25 homers that they might still hit, whereas last year maybe got you three extra points, this year may get you four or five, 
Again, it depends upon where you are, but it might make the acquisition of one of these top sluggers even more beneficial than, than in previous seasons just because standings are more tightly bunched. Did you also look at RBIs? Has the same thing been true of uh, RBIs? Did not look at RBIs. Uh, did not look at, well, steals are down. I have looked at that in the past. Did not look at RBIs. This, uh, for, for the, the sole reason that the, the column at Fantasy Games is called category impact. So it was more of looking at home runs. It is a good follow up study. And maybe that's, you know, maybe that's what my next category will be. I'll do runs and RBIs in concert and see how close those categories might be because uh, just because home runs are down doesn't necessarily mean that run scoring is down or at least it might not be proportional if homers are down x percent runs might be down but they might not be down to that full extent uh you know sometimes home runs are doubles so a run still gets scored eventually in that that sort of thing but um you said this is the uh, we run a series called Category Impact, and I was looking at home runs for this one. Well, so far at least uh, this year, despite the decline in home runs, run scoring is exactly the same at four point one seven runs per game uh, last year to this year, and uh, RBIs, of course, right around the same as well, three ninety five to three ninety six. So whatever's going on with home runs, maybe they're making it up in other ways, being smarter and more aggressive about stealing bases, as we've talked about, and and so on. But you did mention something that is absolutely and fairly obviously true. Once you know that the uh, home run totals are down, that means somebody who contributes a greater number of home runs has more value than in past years. Uh, and I know you you looked at uh, quite a, a dozen or so uh, hitters who are well poised to add, add some home run value to your team. Todd, give us a few of those names. Well, if you're into taking chances... On injury players, Mark Trumbo should be back in a few weeks, and at least early on, he was showing the the prolific power moving to the to the National League and moving to Arizona in a in a good park that we expected. So I don't always like trading for injured players, but if you're sort of in a state of desperation, he's a guy to look at. I think Chris Davis is going to get the power stroke back. He's always sh- already showing signs of it. Uh, you know these. Easier said than done, trading for Chris Davis, that sort of thing. But I do think it kind of anecdotally, the I told you so's about Chris Davis. I told you he was a fluke. Well, the man had 33 homers two years ago. So, yeah, he wasn't going to hit 53 again, but he wasn't a fluke either. The man's got power. He's striking out at the same rate as he did last year. I think the power is going to come back. Uh, I mean, Edwin Encarnacion, but... Uh, there is a problem, a potential injury there, so it, it'd be a little bit of a risk. A guy that I'm not really looking at, two guys real quick that I'm not looking at would be Evan Longoria and Jay Bruce. I just don't like what I'm seeing from them as far as the ability to to bounce back and, and, and get it done. Pedro Alvarez is a guy I would go after uh, if I needed the boost. And I mean, you know, you could say Stanton, but Stanton's owner, unless you give him a King's Ransom, is not about to trade him. And finally, Todd, uh, also at FantasyAlarm.com, you embarked upon a series about applying various kinds of splits when you're looking at making your 
uh, roster decisions and and um, pitching decisions in daily games. Uh, you're looking at such factors as handedness of pitchers versus hitting lineups, home and away park factors, quality of opposing pitcher, and so forth. And I know you've already published the first couple of those having to do with handedness and home and away. Right. The first one was home and away. And uh, Friday, we ended up putting the handedness. Real quick, what I've gone through all these sort of describing in the previously that they have an impact, that they influence a daily projection, all these different factors. So what I'm doing here is I'm holding all but one of these variables constant. So I'm putting them into a neutral park. I'm stripping away the home away advantage. This is what I did for today's, for Friday's. Stripped away the home away advantage and made a left-handed pitcher and a right-handed pitcher having the same skills and a right-handed batter and a left-handed batter having the same skills and just matched them up. Lefty, righty, righty, lefty, 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 righty, righty, and ran the adjustments based upon the normal league-wide difference, how many, how a player strikes out, different in different situations, how the power is influenced in different situations, etc. Did the adjustment to the baseline projection and found, and maybe there's a Danny Fantasy site, and when I, so I converted it to the points on the three most popular daily fantasy sites. So now, instead of just, you know, hearing that handedness has an advantage and this is the the weighted on base average for lefty versus righty, etc. By converting it to fantasy points for sites that people are familiar with, it gives you a, a more practical idea of the actual influence of the different situations. And ultimately, as I run through all the different scenarios, you're going to be able to, which is better, to have a, two equal players, one of which is at home versus a righty, and the other which is at away in a good park. Um, eventually there's going to be a matrix that you can sort of pick any scenario and get an idea, at least projection-wise. I mean, those that play Daily Fantasy that are listening know that you don't want Miguel Cabrera to to get his 3.3 points projection. You want him to get a homer, you know, four RBIs and, and have a game better than his projection, which is sort of a topic for another day, but you got to start somewhere. So we'll start with the baseline projection. Uh, so yesterday we did home and away and home is better, uh, obviously. And, and what we've in handedness, it's lefty, righty, righty, lefty are much better than righty, righty, which is better than lefty, lefty is for, from the batter's perspective. But at least so far, what we determine that I, based upon the data is home away trumps handedness. But the caveat being some players if they've been in the league long enough, own their home and away, own their lefty, righty, righty, lefty splits. And you need around five or six or seven full seasons in the majors to do that. And the difference, if you, if you hit off the, the offhand in this much, much better than the league average, your points might be better facing the, the, the offhand in this player than the league average. But there's, select few players that actually have been in the league long enough and exhibit splits great enough for it to be considered different than the league average. Most of the players will will fall close enough to the league average that you just use the league average. So that that's uh what we did in the in the in the piece. 
And I said, as we're going to go through it, you know, we're going to go through park effects and we're going to go through quality of opposition. And maybe in a few weeks we can circle back to this when I've done them all and we can, we can reveal which is the biggest influence. Well, I'm gonna. I could have a prediction here, but I'll I'll leave it aside. <laughs> let me let me let me just say though that uh, anybody listening who's thinking about these issues, the kind of things you're talking about are really at the margins of choosing players. You're not going to sit Clayton Kershaw and start Bud Norris because of handedness issues or park issues or any issues. If you've got Clayton Kershaw on your roster, you're going to start Clayton Kershaw every game, and I and I think the same is true of guys like Miguel Cabrera. And, and your top players, you can't afford to sit them for what are really marginal kind of differences between players on these various split bases. Well, actually, that's an interesting um, – this is, this is done specifically for daily. However, there's a serious application to, say, Ron Chandler's monthly game where you're making twice-a-week moves uh, as far as getting the, your, your players in there. And – the some of the high stakes contests you're allowed twice a week moves so definitely at the margins you take a look at, at at a player with a weekend series friday to sunday you get to change your lineups on friday and sure you can look at you know let's let's see who's facing pitching let's see where he is home and away so even though this was a daily fantasy column i can definitely see how i can write it in in more of a general sense and like you said, on the margins. I'm not going to sit Miguel Cabrera because I don't have Paul Goldschmidt on my roster and I can play one or the other. You know, Miggy's in there. But if I'm looking at Matt Joyce versus Nate Sherholtz, there are definitely some factors I can look at to decide which of the two to play. Exactly so. Todd, thanks very much for doing this. Keep up the great work at FantasyAlarm.com and MastersBall.com and BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, all the places you write. Keep it up. I, uh, that's the plan. It's my job. And I'll talk to you again next week. Excellent. Todd Zola writes for all the sites I mentioned and to our great advantage appears every Friday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. Stay with us for pitcher matchups and master notes on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time for our regular Friday commentaries. Speculator columnist Ray Murphy is on deck with Master Notes, and we lead off this inning with our matchup segment. Remember, Baseball HQ matchup ratings look at every starting pitcher matchups using pitcher skills and recent performance, as well as the strength of the opposing team. We arrive at a matchup rating from plus 5 to minus 5. 
We recommend pitchers who have matchup ratings of 2.0 or higher, while we warn you against pitchers with ratings of 0 or worse. Everything in between, we call a risk versus benefit play that you'll have to assess given your own team and league contexts. Now looking at coming matchups for Kansas City left-hander Danny Duffy, L.A. right-hander Zach Greinke, and their opponents, here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. In the American League on Saturday, Royals rookie Danny Duffy rolls into Yankee Stadium with a matchup rating of minus 147. His opponent is the suddenly resurgent David Phelps, who has a matchup rating of 135. But what if we are watching Duffy do the one thing he must do to take advantage of his excellent arsenal? Control his control. Duffy has walked three or fewer batters in four of his past five starts. Three of those four starts were PQS dominant, and two of those three PQS doms were on the road. BaseballHQ.com starting pitcher analyst Stephen Nickrand noted recently that Duffy is posting the best control of his career, and he advised that if you have a bench, Duffy is a good guy to stash there. It may be time to get him off of the bench and into your starting rotation. In the National League on Saturday, Zach Grenke takes on the Rockies in Gulp Coors Field. He gave up nine earned runs in ten and a third innings there last year, so no wonder he has a matchup rating of minus 056. His opponent, Jolish Sassin, has a matchup rating of minus 024. Sounds like a slugfest on the surface, and it just may be. Or, it may be something we dread as much as pitchers dread Coors Field. Those ten and a third innings may be a small sample size statistical anomaly. In the 15 innings of his two home starts against the Rockies last year, Granke gave up one run and six hits. And prior to his past two starts, Granke allowed two or fewer earned runs in 25 straight games, a major league record. With his ground ball rate of 47%, the third time in Coors may be the charm for Grenke. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. If your league rules and format let you take advantage of pitcher streaming, then you need to check out daily matchups reports as well as the exclusive Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups tool only at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And with a look at feeding the prospect frenzy, here's the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, speculator columnist Ray Murphy. If you are a prospect wonk, June is probably your favorite time of year. The sometimes controversial and barely understandable Super 2 arbitration rules make June a prime window for top prospects to make their MOB debuts. Sure, We have been treated to Xander Bogart since opening day and George Springer since mid-April, just to name two top prospects. But just in the last week, we have witnessed the arrivals of Oscar Tavares and Jonathan Singleton. In the very near future, they are likely to be joined by Gregory Polanco, Andrew Heaney, Eddie Butler, and perhaps an entire wave of the Cubs' future. And that's just on the National League side. In addition to all of these MLB arrivals, This week's first-year player draft further drives the prospect buzz. Baseball's answer to the NFL or NBA rookie drafts will never match the buzz generated around the draft in those other sports. The players' delayed impact on the baseball clubs ensure that. That's probably a good thing, as I can do without an MLB equivalent of Mel Kuyper Jr. Still, 
The first-year player draft has become more of an event in recent years, and it's not hard to see why. The notion of draft night as your first acquaintance with the next Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, or Steven Strasburg is a pretty compelling hook. Between the new crop of MLB arrivals and the pre- and post-draft hype surrounding the new draftees, June represents the annual peak interest level in the prospect space. All of this buzz creates an excellent opportunity to sell your prospects and minor league draft picks into this frenzied environment. Yes, as with so many other examples in our game, it can be highly profitable to take a contrarian approach to zig when others are zagging. If you currently manage a contending team in a keeper league, this is a fairly easy call. The dynamics of dump trades are frequently league-specific, but there is a widespread acknowledgement that you need to spend from your farm system or your cheap young MLB players to push your team over the top. As the saying goes, flags fly forever. When a chance to win comes along, you need to chase it aggressively. But if your Keeper League team is not a clear contender at this point, you should consider acting like it is anyway. You can get a great bang for your buck by selling prospects right now. If you find the right deal and can vault into contention, it's worth it to sell some of your prospects. If the deal doesn't yield the desired standings effect, there is still enough time to reverse course and do some dumping later on to backfill your farm system or your draft pick stock. Even an also-ran team might be able to find a profitable trade opportunity in this environment. Especially if the standings are giving you access to a premium new call-up or minor league draft pick, you might be able to flip that pick for something that represents a better keeper for next year. Perhaps one of the pile of Tommy John rehabbing pitchers, or a younger, still cheap, post-hype prospect who isn't included in the current frenzy. Someone like, say, Jerks and Profar, who is out of sight, out of mind right now, might still be a better 2015 keeper than a Jonathan Singleton. Those in non-keeper leagues can get in on the action as well. This is a great time to sell a George Springer, for instance. Just as one data point, Springer was the single most frequently rostered player for the June games over at ChandlerPark.com. That is a testament not just to his salary in that format, but to the notion that people are all too willing to believe that, right now, we are witnessing his emergence as a star. It doesn't always work that way, though. Springer is likely to have some growing pains at some point, probably soon. If you can bank the profit you have made on him to date, insulate yourself from that upcoming slump, and collect a nice bounty of more proven players in the deal, you should jump all over that opportunity. Today may well be the peak of Springer's market value for the foreseeable future. The world of prospecting is one of the last irrational marketplaces in our games. By all means, enjoy the frenzy this month. Just make sure you're on the profitable side of it. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Speculator columnist Ray Murphy is the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition for June the 6th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 40 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our regular Friday Talk with Todd correspondent was Todd Zola. Our HQ Matchups commentator was Greg Fishwick. 
And our Master Notes commentator was the co-general manager of BaseballHQ.com, speculator columnist Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt. I'll have a Facts and Flukes Spotlight special on Dodger starter Zach Greinke coming up very soon on the BaseballHQ.com site. And of course, I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook. And we have a Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt and be the first to know when a new edition of Baseball HQ Radio is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in four days with our Tuesday Tout edition on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>